Great. Thanks, Peter. And good morning, guys, from afar. I hope you all are well and staying healthy, and um, it's good to sort of see you uh, through, uh, through these means. But uh, we are going to dive right into Mark. Uh, lots of good stuff to talk about today. We are really excited for these next four weeks, five sermons. Uh, and if you count Good Friday, five sermons, but four weeks in the Gospel of Mark, leading us right up to and through Easter. Um, so we, um, we may broadcast what passages we're going to look at. We didn't do that this week because we had kind of a left turn this week, and I'll explain that here uh, in just, uh, just a minute. But if you want to tr- open up your Bibles or phone apps, that'd be awesome. Uh, it's probably even more important than usual because we won't have the Scripture on screen to follow along. And so if you have a Bible, that'd be great to open up to Mark 1, verse 29. And we have two passages today, two short uh, five-verse healing passages uh, in Mark chapter 1 that we're going to look at that uh, relate um, in lots of amazing ways. We'll talk about that today. Uh, it displays Jesus' love and grace to us ultimately, and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, but grab a Bible, open a phone app to Mark 1, 29 to 34 to start. As you're doing that, Mark is, if you're not familiar with the Bible uh, much yet or haven't read Mark, Mark is one of the four gospel accounts in the New Testament. He was a close friend and associate of Peter's one of Jesus' 12 disciples, mentioned in the book of Acts. He was an early uh, sinner, saved by grace, just like a lot of us. He was a guy who uh, was pursued by Jesus. He believed the gospel. He repented. He became uh, a Christian, but an associate, a missionary type in the early centuries, early decades of the church. And it was a guy that God just used to write down an inspired theological, historical account of Jesus' life and ministry So that it's not just history, but it's theology. Always remember that. I know I say that about 100 times each sermon, but it is so important to understand, especially when we read narrative, that it is not just history, though it is. It is theology. It is theological history. So that when we read it, it kind of shapes how we read it then. This is not something we're just looking at to understand the what's of what happened in the first century, kind of in and around Jesus' life, but we're also reading to understand the hows and the whys. Why is Jesus saying the things he's doing? Why is he operating this way? And what type of gospel theology does it symbolize or state explicitly? And so today we're going to look at Mark 1, 29 to 34, as well as verses 40 to 45. Uh, It's basically some excerpts of Jesus' early ministry post-baptism. And one of the first things he does, and most of the gospel accounts indicate this, the first three at least, but they all talk about it, but especially Mark and and Matthew talk about this. One of the first things he does is just goes around and heals a bunch of people from their sicknesses, from different kinds of diseases, and he delivers demoniacs, people who um, who are possessed by demons as well. So in a lot of ways, Jesus early on acts like a doctor. He talks like a doctor, he acts like a doctor, but it's also heightened. It's more than that, too, because he acts like a warrior. He acts like an authority figure over the sicknesses. He doesn't, he doesn't give medicine. He actually is the medicine himself. When he speaks against demons and closes their mouths, when he delivers people from their presence, but then with the sicknesses, when he, with a touch, heals them, he doesn't have medicine. He is the medicine. So have that in mind as we uh, go on here as well. All right? So Mark 1 29 to 34, let's read that paragraph first and we'll talk about it and come to the latter section here in just a minute. Verse 29, and immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her 
And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. All right, so let's start today by talking about viruses uh, theologically. We're not going to preach this passage, and then a global pandemic happened and we took a left turn. So here we are. Uh, But let's talk about viruses theologically. So uh, first and foremost, with passages like this, uh, we affirm that Jesus is stronger, right? Not a small thing that Jesus went head-to-head with viruses, literally in the Bible, seen in the fever here in Simon's mother-in-law, and he always won. Always, 100% of the time, he won. Maybe something we might read with fresh eyes now during a global pandemic, right? He wasn't just a man, he was the Son of God himself, King and Lord over the smallest of bugs and molecules, and maybe the fulfillment of God's decree to Adam In the beginning, when God said to him, you will be given dominion over all creepy and crawly things. But this is the first point. The Bible actually mentions viruses. It mentions fevers and affirms Jesus' complete and total power over them. This is where fears start to abate. This is where they start to wane. And we can and should pray for Jesus to exert this type of power over the coronavirus. That's a good thing to do that he would protect, that he would heal, whether miraculously or by social distancing or by medicine or some other means, that he would act in in this kind of way. It's good to yearn for that, good to let our requests be known by a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. But at the very least, what we need to remember is that he's not out of control of these things. That's even more important. He heals sometimes, but he always promises to be with us through the storm, a storm that he will eventually end. And here's another aside as well. Uh, We were talking, the overseers were this week a bit about this, um, but in case this is a fear of yours as well, Christ promises always to grow his church. He will always grow it. A simple survey of Acts and a simple survey of church history shows us that this virus stands literally zero chance at derailing the cause of the gospel through the local church. In fact, it'll probably serve as a bit of a spark in a lot of ways to the cause of the gospel uh, around the world, as it already is in uh, many and various ways. All right, that's the first thing, though, is to affirm Jesus is stronger. The second thing is to, under, to understand about things like viruses. And I'm going to go outside of Mark 1 a little bit, but staying in Mark. I'll read from Mark 13 here in a second. But going outside of Mark 1 a little bit, the second thing to affirm is that viruses are birth pangs of final judgment. And so you guys might be hearing uh, people say things like, God is punishing us right now with this virus, or maybe the, the idea that Mother Nature is punishing us. But as Christians, we don't listen to that. Like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit with reality or with good theology because we know things operate by grace, not by works. Karma does not rule the universe. Grace does. I mean, if it was really about punishments, why now? Why would this be happening now? Why not uh, four months ago? Why not a year ago? We don't deserve another breath. 
and we didn't deserve another breath pre-coronavirus either. So it makes no sense to understand these things in a kind of tit-for-tat karmic way. But here's what we can affirm, and I said it before, I'll say it again. Here's what we can affirm, though. Viruses, though not forms of punishment, can still be pictures and harbingers of future judgments and divine wrath. Mark 13.8, if you want to flip over to that, uh, feel free to do that, but I'll just read this. Mark 13.8 says, this is Jesus speaking, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And I would add here, there will be viruses. There will be pandemics. But this is the key. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. So what Jesus is saying here is that these types of things are foreshocks of the greater earthquake that's still yet to come. When Jesus will return, when he will bring final judgment and wrath against all evil. And so God is graciously warning us all through things like this. He's warning Christians and non-Christians alike, believers and people who have yet to believe the gospel alike. He's letting us share in these birth pains and these foreshocks to warn us collectively to believe the gospel and to cling to Jesus for dear life and to repent and turn away from our old way of living and to trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. Or in other words, a worse pandemic is coming. The one we're going through right now will not last. It's going to wane. It's going to fade. But a worse pandemic is coming, and Jesus' blood is the vaccine. All right, that's the second thing to understand. The third layer to this, and this is going to sound similar to what I just said, but it's different. That what I just said is more like outside of us. It's like looking out uh, and learning something about viruses sort of out there and more objectively. But this is going to look in. And so the third layer is viruses are pictures of our individual sin, like our spiritual sickness. They're symptomatic of a deeper problem, namely our separation from God, our propensity to worship ourselves, our sexual sin, our greed, our slander, our envy, and our hate. And the list goes on. In Mark 2.17, so if you have an open Bible, just kind of flip over one chapter. Uh, in Mark 2.17, Jesus talks about this when he links sickness and sin. Not in a causal way or in a one-to-one correlative manner, but a symbolic manner. When he says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the key, that last part. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So quite plainly here, there's a lot going on in this verse, but it's a paradigm. Quite plainly, sick and sinner are linked. Right in the midst of him, healing people of physical ailments or diseases. So again, he's giving us a paradigm here for understanding why he's healing at all. Why do the gospel accounts start with so much widespread physical healing? Well, he's telling us right here. He's saying, this is the paradigm. This is how to view our sicknesses. And that is as a reminder of spiritual sickness. But again, not in a one-to-one kind of way where we say, oh man, I'm sick. God must be punishing me. But instead, a my sickness reminds me of my need for Jesus. There's a grace in that. There's a grace in that. There's a love in that. There's a type of love, like a a father warning his child 
of an impending threat that that child can't see. That this, there's a grace in that that we need to see. And Jesus is doing this. He's helping people to see. This is why I'm healing. And so then with that idea then, take Mark 2, 17, kind of like almost transpose it on top of Mark 1. Because when we do that, when we have this paradigm in mind, we can look at passages like Mark 1 and make assertions from it about the gospel. We can use the language of Mark 1 to understand the gospel with different types of word pictures and languages that it might not, the Bible might not employ elsewhere. That's why they're there. Mark 1 is not just there to tell us that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever, and then we just go on historically from that, but instead to tell us that he too, through his eventual death and his eventual resurrection, quote, takes our hand and lifts us up from our sickbed of sin. That's the gospel. Uh, And that sin completely leaves us. Like the fever completely left this woman, our sin completely, not in part, but completely leaves us. And so this, this means also the phrase various diseases equates to the idea of various sins, which then equates to the idea that Jesus heals us of all kinds of sin. Not just one sanitized kind, but all kinds. The various sins that fill our minds and bodies and that come out in our words, that come out in our apathy, that come out in our propensity to self-worship. He heals of all kinds of sins, not just one sanitized kind. Isn't that amazing news? So to kind of recap here, uh, Jesus destroys viruses Uh, One, two, Jesus really heals us of our sin fever. But then three, and this is kind of going back to that, using the language of this passage to understand the gospel. Three, he does it willingly. He's not, his arm's not being twisted here. Uh, Like when he's healing this woman of a fever, right? In the same way for us, he wants to heal us. He wants to take us by the hand. Isn't that just an intimate, almost impossible to to fully fathom picture of the God of the universe that he wants to hold our hand and lift us up from our beds. This is what he does. He willingly heals with compassion. He takes our hand in power and grace and lifts us up from hell. That's the gospel. And that's what he does for us today. Right now as we hear this, that's his posture towards us in love. All right, so I have one more Mark passage to read with you guys today, and I, I'm doing this because the, the second passage from Mark 1, 40 to 45, which is a, a passage about Jesus healing a leper from leprosy, I want to do this because this secondary passage, which I think there's intentionality behind why it comes second, is it gets more at the how. So we talk about Jesus being stronger than viruses, being able to heal us of physical ailments, but even generally about Jesus healing us of our spiritual viruses, our sins. That's good. All that's true and good. And yet the Bible always goes deeper. It always always gets more specific when it talks about how exactly he's ultimately going to do this. Because what we're reading now is not the ultimate. This is not ultimately what Jesus does throughout his ministry. There's progression. And that's just something, too, if you're new to the Bible, this is uh, maybe helpful, hopefully helpful for you, but to understand the Bible in general, though there are some exceptions, in general moves from the general to the specific, or questions to answers, or the foggy to the clear. And so we see a mini microcosm of that here in Mark 1, where we're starting general, but we're getting specific. We're starting with the what and going more to the how.
And that's why we're doing this today. So let's read one more passage and a few more comments on this. Mark 1, verses 40 to 45. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. All right, so, so again, let me ask the question this way. Jesus heals and saves, but how does he ultimately do that? Or another question, how are these texts, these passages, symbolic and prophetic? How do they serve a, a forward-leaning or a, a future-oriented prophetic bent to them? How are they looking ahead to something Jesus would do in a greater way later? There's three layers to this, all right? So first, it says that Jesus was one moved with pity, which again, we see the compassion, the willingness of Christ here, but he was moved with pity, and this is the important part, he stretched out his hand. Jesus was moved with pity over the leper when he came to him. He wanted to heal, but here's what he did. He stretched out his hand and touched him. This is a common way that Jesus heals, with outstretched hand, it says. But why do you think this is? He didn't have to do this, right? Doesn't Jesus later calm the wind and the waves of the storm and the sea just with his words? Jesus is choosing to heal with an outstretched hand here. And Mark is choosing to write this down this way theologically to show us that Jesus is healing in a cruciform way a way physically formed by a crucified person's shape. He's not just healing then, but casting his stretched out arms on this man. Arms that would one day be stretched out on a cross and pierced for the leprous sins of the world. That's how it's prophetic. That's how it's forward-leaning. As he's healing with stretched out hands here, he would later ultimately heal with both his hands stretched out on a cross and pierced with nails uh, to that cursed tree for all of us weak and weary leprous sinners. All right, second, Jesus says to the leper, which this is interesting, Jesus says after he heals him, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for cleansing. There's two things he says here. I'm going to talk about both of them today. But he says, show yourself to the priest and make an offering for cleansing. So this is still kind of Old Testament time. Until Jesus dies on the cross, uh, this is still, there's lingering Old Testament situations here. And the, the laws are still in effect. The temple is, is still here. So uh, Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest, make an offering for cleansing now as a healed leper. All right, so one, this is important because one thing Mark shows us here is that there is a contrast between Jesus and the priests. Jesus and the Old Testament priests. So just really simply, the priests who we know from elsewhere in the Bible represent the whole Old Testament system built around commandment keeping and 
the Ten Commandments themselves and the laws. All of that could not provide healing for this leper, right? In fact, by the law's very nature, it commanded lepers outside the city. I'm going to read from Leviticus 13 here in a minute, but um, the, the, the law's very nature, there were actual laws in the Old Testament that commanded lepers outside the towns and outside the, the camp of Israel, outside the camp of God. So what that means is the law literally forced the sick to be separated from God. The law literally forced the sick to be separated from God. Just like the law separates in general rather than reconciles. So we would say this like in a, in a New Testament way. We would say the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Like our commandment keeping actually drives more of a wedge between us and God rather than sort of incrementally brings us closer. There needs to altogether be another way. And that's what the hope is in this passage. Because it's not true. None of that's true with Jesus. With Jesus, everything's different. The rules change. The laws change. Jesus actually saves. Through his death and resurrection, ultimately, but here we're seeing a glimpse of this, Jesus actually saves because he is altogether different than the old laws. He's a different kind of priest. He's not throwing commandments on the leper. He's just touching him. So the laws, the commandments, our works can't save. They actually serve the purpose of separating further. But Jesus' touch, which is altogether different, it is a New Testament touch. It is a new covenant touch. That can and does, not just for the leper, but for us. All right, so biblically then, to summarize this, the, the, the how behind salvation in the Bible is commonly juxtaposed with what doesn't work as well to underscore Jesus' importance and his beauty. How are we saved then? Not by the law. Not by our works, but by Jesus' sacrificial touch. All right? There's one more layer, though. It goes a little bit deeper than this, and this is important as well. It's actually the most important part of this. And the last thing we see here is the fact, going back to Mark 1, 40 to 45, Jesus, after he heals the leper, also tells him to not tell anyone about the miracle. But the guy did anyway. And so Jesus was forced out to desolate places, away from crowds, outside the towns. And there's a lot of reasons why Jesus here is uh, closing the mouths of demons and people as well uh, to not reveal his identity. I'm not going to go into all those today for the sake of time. But I just want you to see here that, that this happens. Jesus is saying, don't tell anybody about me or about the healing. Yet he does anyway. And so Jesus, because of the like, impending or ensuing crowds, he's, almost, he's forced outside the town. So this is a seemingly unimportant detail, but it's probably the most important thing going on in this passage. And here's why. Leviticus 13.46. If you want to turn there, that's great, but just listen to this. This is an Old Testament law. I was alluding to this before. Leviticus 13.46 says, the leprous person who has the disease shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. This is the key. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The leprous person's dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
away from people outside the town. So do you see what's going on here? In the Old Testament, someone with leprosy was kept outside the towns away from others so their sickness would not be contracted by others. When Jesus heals the leper here, the leper is healed physically and is restored to the town, restored to the community, but Jesus is forced outside the towns, into desolate places, like a what? Like a leper. See, Jesus, even though he didn't physically become leprous here, he's acting like a leper to show us that he's not just cleansing the leper, he's replacing the leper. He's becoming figuratively leprous in the wake of the leper's healing. And if you think about it, it was actually the the leper's sinful disobedience to Jesus that drove Jesus outside the towns in the first place while the sinful leper was restored. This is the gospel. Jesus is symbolically showing himself to be infected with the viruses and bacteria of sin so we might be cleansed, that our fevers might break, that our skin might clear, and that our quarantines might even end. All of this would come to fruition on the cross later in the story when he would pay our debts by becoming like an indebted one. See, Jesus didn't just take on the brunt on the cross for us, but he also took on many brunts in lesser ways in passages like today's before he died so that it would become clear to us that that's why he came. That's his mission. Everything he says, everything he does has intention to it, to point us to the one great event of his substitutionary death. Infected, quarantined in his outside-the-camp crucifixion, ultimately killed for you and me so we might live. Do you see The one who with a word and a touch destroys viruses early in the story, and we saw that. That wasn't enough, though. He had to become infected by our sin. He had to wear it. He had to take on our sin in order to destroy it. That, you guys, is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to have hope during a global pandemic. And that's what it means to be loved on the highest level. And I was thinking this week, in in a lot of ways, it really is this simple to say, who are you trusting? In whom are you placing your trust? Is it in the world, which leads to fear? Or is it in Jesus, which leads to hope? Trust, belief, faith is everything. So who do you trust? That's the first question. But the second question is, for what do you trust him? It's not just enough to say we trust him for eventual deliverance from a physical virus. That's not what the story is climaxing in. Jesus himself's not saying that, right? So who do you trust, but for what do you trust him? Even and especially during pandemics like this, this is is especially important to understand now. Who's our hope in, but for what? For what? For eradication of a virus, or eradication of of sin. 
Jesus makes it clear, not only did he come for that purpose, but he came to empathize with us. He came to be quarantined. He came to be infected. He came to understand our sicknesses and sorrows. He took them all on. And, and this, is, this is where love is, right? He didn't just come to eradicate them, but to become them for us. Love and choice and substitution and taking a bullet, all those things are inextricably connected. And so let's believe that again uh, and afresh as a church uh, today and this week. You guys are deeply loved, way more than you know. Uh, so let me pray for us and we'll, we'll close. Father, thank you so much for the gospel in Mark 1. Um, there is such rich imagery here, uh, and we're just scratching the surface. Your power, your willingness, your pity and compassion for weak, sinful people, rebels like us, uh, and the fact that not only did you have that and not only did you heal, but you were willing to take on what was killing us so it wouldn't kill us anymore. That's amazing, amazing love. The cross is substitutionary. That's why you became figuratively leprous in Mark 1, cast outside the towns when the sinful leper was able just to go in and go about his life and be completely restored. That is, that's what's true about us right now. If we believe the gospel, we can go about our lives. We can have hope. We can be restored to community with God and with other people. We can be forgiven, totally cleansed of everything we've ever done and said. And you are there, Father, or Jesus, on the cross dying uh, for our sins. Uh, that's, that's the picture we should have. It was a once-for-all thing, but you did that um, for us. That was your posture towards us, Father. So help us to believe, to trust in you, and um, to cling to the gospel in these dark, dark days. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Guys, that's about it. So, hey, thanks again for joining us. Hope to see you guys next week, and uh, look out for that midweek content as well. So we, we love you guys. We're praying for you daily. Hang in there, and um, we will see you soon.